So we'll get started. And, and, and while it's warming up, I can tell you, I, I know what I'm supposed to preach about today. Um, no, I mean that, seriously, it's New Year's Day. So ordinarily, um, what we would have uh, is a, les- a New Year's lesson. So I would start by telling you we should all stop and give thanks to God for getting us safely through the past year, um, which he's obviously done because we're all here, alive and well. Uh, and then we should take that and then look towards the new year, trusting that he'll do the very same, because he will. He's God. Um, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I, I know that's what I'm supposed to preach on. Uh, given the fact that we've been through several, what I'm going to call challenging years, um, from COVID to the economy, I thought maybe this year what we should probably do is consider a lesson um, that's more than our annual pep talk about trusting God for the new year. So if you'll indulge me, what I'd like to do is go at this a little bit differently. Rather than going from 2022 to 2023, I would suggest we have this perspective <clears throat> of going from the known to the unknown. And there's a couple reasons why. Obviously, we don't know what the future holds. But we do believe in a God that not only knows what the future holds, but is ultimately in control of every last second of it. Um, but part of what I want to talk about today is the known part that we're leaving. And sometimes I think we think we know uh, everything that we need to know, but I wonder if maybe we have missed something. And what I'm going to suggest is the more we understand what we're supposed to know, this leap of faith into the unknown will not only become easier for us or safer for us is maybe the way to say it, but I could guarantee you to have a tremendously blessed 2023 if we understand what God is teaching us, what we already know or should know, and take that into our future. God has a specific design and plan for our lives here on earth, and once we unravel what it's all supposed to be, it makes a lot of sense, and it ultimately blesses us because we're following God's ways rather than our own ways. For this to make sense, I need to start this way. I want you to take a look at this picture, and I'll give you a little bit of time, but I want you to to, uh, find out what's wrong with this picture. And when you find it, don't shout out the answer raise your hand, and I'll give you just, oh, a couple of people saw it already? Okay. You would be in the, probably the top 1% of people, and I don't want to make the rest of y'all feel bad. Okay. Picked up on it right. How about the rest of you? Okay. So I'm, I, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six. I'd say, well, now you're all getting it there. You've gotten enough time. You're making me feel stupid because it took me a long time to, to find it, okay? For the rest of you, uh, what, the, what I'm trying to uh, explain here, display to you, is what's known, uh, at least cognitive psychologists will call this attentional blindness. And basically what it means is uh, our brains are wired in such a way when they're given too much information, we don't have the ability to take it all in. So we can be looking right at something and, and completely miss it. So for those of you who have gotten it, great, man. You guys are, you're, you're not blind the way I was, uh, but let's try it again. So for those of you who didn't see it, because to be honest, um, not only did I have this picture, I chose it, but I had it on my computer screen for some period of time, and I just couldn't see it. So I had to cheat. I read through the rest of the article, and it, it finally pointed it out. So I just wanted to give you a little time, because once you see it, you can't unsee it, okay? There. There's no right turn. Is that what you all saw? Those of you, raised, okay. You, I, for some reason, I don't know. Certain people have the ability. I was just clueless to it. Maybe it was the sidewalks or whatever that threw me off, but uh, I just didn't see it. This attentional blindness, this uh, inability to take everything that's in front of us in all at once, um, has applications in today's lesson. So let's try this again. Uh, I want you to look at this picture, and I want you to tell me 
what's wrong with it. And before you answer, uh, there's a couple things uh, we need to take off the board to begin with. Because whenever we get to biblical accounts, we know that certain artists will have certain concepts that they put into their paintings or their, or their pictures. So there, there's two things in here that you might say are problematic that I just want to Im immediately eliminate. The first would be the apple she's holding. Um, scripture teaches us that the tree of knowledge of good and evil uh, had fruit, but it never calls it an apple, uh, and it's actually one of my pet peeves that people say Eve bit from the apple. Maybe it was an apple, maybe it wasn't. Uh, so we're going to take that one off the board. The other one is how the, the serpent is rendered, because, and you heard in our Old Testament lesson, uh, God cursed a serpent saying it would crawl on his belly. Some people would prefer to have this picture, this part of the account of scripture, uh, to be represented with a more lizard-like creature, something with legs and feet. Now, taking those two off the, the, the table here, what's wrong with this picture? Okay, I, th I think I've made my point. There's attentional blindness going on, and, I, and I'll be the first to be uh, uh, honest with you. For years I've looked at this picture from various aspects, both visually but also scripturally, and there's just way too much information here. There's so much here about the love of God that we have this attentional blindness. So let me give you a little cheat sheet. Let me see if this won't help. Jesus is God's greatest gift to the world. But why did he need to come? Echoes of God's redemption through his son Jesus have resounded throughout time. All of creation, all of scripture, everything points to Jesus. Even in the garden, echoes of God's redemption were heard. Creation was full of life, and it was good. But there was one of God's creatures who thought he could destroy it all. two things in that video clip that give us insight into what's wrong with that picture. And, and I want to be very careful about this because you look at that picture and you go, well, obviously sin is now a part of this world. There's been a temptation here. Eve has succumbed to it. Um, and so when I say what's wrong with this picture, you'll think the answer is, well, Jesus had to become human and take our place under the guilt of the law. And, and all that's true. Uh, we've all learned the Sunday school answer. Jesus became human took on flesh and blood, died in our place so that we could go to heaven. And that's all very true. But that's not what's wrong with this picture because in this picture, Adam hasn't eaten from the fruit yet. And according to Matthew 25, heaven did not yet exist. It came as the result of man's fall into sin. So as we look at this picture, the first thing the video said was, well, why did he need to come? It's referring to the incarnation of the Son of God. Why did God himself have to take on human flesh and blood? And of course, in catechism class, you were taught, well, that's the only way he could die. That's the only way he could be under God's law. And those are true. But there's more to the picture. There's more to the story if we're willing to look beyond the obvious. And it has to do with what we kind of looked at already in our gospel lesson. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. And I, in the past, that's Yeshua. That's the Lord saves. So on the eighth day, it was the ceremonial law that Jewish parents had to have their male baby circumcised. 
That was the first time the Son of God shed his blood for us. It was also, according to Jewish tradition, that a male baby was given their official name, the name Jesus. The octave of Christmas is when the Son of God, if you will, for the very first time, sheds blood in order to be our Savior. And you might think, well, okay. I always just waited till I thought about the cross or, or the whole passion story. It began right away with the Savior's life. But that's still not really what's wrong. What we need to do is to go to the other Christmas account, and that's the one recorded for us in Matthew, where the angel comes to Joseph and talks about what Luke records, that he would be named Jesus on that eighth day. And it wasn't just tradition for the son of Joseph and Mary. It was God's plan that he would fulfill his name, Yeshua, the Lord saves. But Matthew says something very specific. He would give this name because he will save his people from their sins. Well, of course, we've learned that, Pastor. Move on. Let's get to it. Except Pastor and I both have taught you that there are several different words in the Greek language for sin. And, and the way my mind works, and, and you'll have to blame God for that, um, why this word? Why, why, not the sin, not, why not the word for trespass? Why not the word for evil? Why not the word for idolatry? Why this word? And you've been taught in the past that hamartia means to miss the mark. And that's usually a pretty good definition of the description of our sins. We've missed the perfect mark of God's standard for our lives. But it just doesn't suffice. Not when you really look at the picture and see what's wrong. What we need to do is actually the etymology of the word hamartia. And you see the root word meros. It means one's lot. It means one's place. Or it means one's share in life, one's destiny. Jesus came because sin steals from us our destiny. This picture identifies the fact that sin was threatening to destroy everything God had created us to be and everything God had created for us to enjoy in this life. Remember, we're not talking about heaven yet, even though we're ultimately looking forward to that as being the completed work of Jesus Christ. There's something else. I'd like to take you further into the ministry of Jesus, and that was the second thing that the video shared with us. Even the garden echoes of God's redemption were heard. Creation was full of life, and it was good. The Hebrew is ma'od tov. You'll hear about that again and again in this lesson. God created us to enjoy a life that was ma'od tov. Very good. Interesting, the fulfillment of Jesus' name, coming full circle, we have to go to later in his ministry. And ironically enough, it's in the account, the context of Jesus healing the man who had been born blind. And he says that phrase, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I was blind, but now I can see it. And there are certain aspects of the name of Jesus that when you fully understand what it means, it's almost like you've seen something for the first time and you can't unsee it. And the only way we see this is through the echoes of Christmas. Only from the vantage point of God becoming human do we finally begin to appreciate everything that means for us and everything it, it meant for him. You see, Jesus, the very next chapter, when those religious leaders who had interrogated the parents and, and it had belittled the man that was the one who was blessed with the miracle, um, they find Jesus and they accuse him of lying. They question his claim as Messiah. And of course, Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy. He knows their evil intentions. He says, you have failed to give the people what they need most, and so I'm here to give it to them, life. And not just some ho-hum life. I've come to give them life to the fullest. The religious leaders weren't doing that. In fact, no religion can give 
to people what only Jesus can give. He gives us our lives back. Now, I'm under no false illusion that what I'm going to tell you today is somehow God can bring heaven and deliver it to us on earth. That's impossible because this world is broken. It's been ruined by what we're studying this morning. And there are some false religions that teach us that if we try hard enough, and if we study hard enough, and if we sacrifice enough things, that somehow we can attain some higher level of perfection. That's not at all what I'm going to be talking about this morning, because we have a sinful human nature. Our flesh is flawed. This is our condition until the day the Lord does return to take us to heaven. But how on earth are we going to get this full life that Jesus wants to give us while we still exist here in this time and in this place? Jesus has come to give us what, well, we've been searching for our whole lives and everything seems to always come up short except him. How do we go from this known, what we think we know about our lives here on earth to this unknown, this future that only God knows and that only God can ultimately lead us to. We have to look at it through the echoes of Christmas. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I know you've heard it a hundred times, maybe a thousand times, but there's something wrong with this picture. What I'm trying to say is, is there's something here that I've been looking at for most of my life that I just have not seen. And the only way I finally did see it is through Christmas. And I'd like to take you on this journey as well. The only way that we can truly appreciate what's in that one single verse is to understand the context. And as Moses wrote Genesis 3, he does so with the assumption that you've read Genesis 1 and 2. And I can't put my finger on what wise man said it, but there is this quote that says, if you understand the first three chapters of Genesis, the entire rest of scriptures just unfold to you. And I'm beginning to appreciate, because what this assumes, our lesson is, that we understand the devil was able to destroy God's perfect creation with his temptation of Eve. And of course, when I read that, there's questions. Why did he tempt Eve and not Adam? Adam was the one with the responsibility. He was the one given the task to guard. Why does he work through Eve? We should also understand that Moses has already described for us the beautiful situation in which this context is written that everything to this point was actually what God says. Adam and Eve were created in God's image. That means they were perfect. They were holy. There were no flaws. There were no defects. At the end of day six, we have that phrase, ma'od tov, that God looked at everything in its original state, including all the angels. They were perfect and holy. Unfortunately, somewhere along the way, we don't know when, we don't know how many, but some of them chose to rebel against God. And that's what puts us into this situation. But ma'od tov for Eve means more than just she was perfect. If you do a deep dive into the words themselves, it means that she was happy. She wasn't some clueless creature. She wasn't all-knowing like God. But what she knew, she knew perfectly. She wasn't some dumb blonde standing there, okay, a talking snake, I should probably eat from the tree, which sometimes I think we come away with. She fully knew what she was doing. And so the question that nags at me is, why on earth would she make this choice? Or really, the question that bugs me most is, why on earth would she have entertained the thought even to go against God in the first place? And it's not that she didn't know right or wrong. 
She received her morality, her perfect morality from God himself. That's what the term ethics refers to. It comes from God given to man. It's not that she didn't know what she was about to do, and yet he was able to tempt her. Well, our lesson begins with, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and what I've been looking at for years was uh, the fact that sin came into this world, and so believers and unbelievers don't really care for each other. But then when you actually look at what God says, and you see this, uh, uh, this curse, if you will. Uh, God has just cursed the snake for his part that he's played in the fall. And now he turns to the devil himself and says, I'm going to put two walls of hatred between you and between this woman and, and between her offspring. See, I always worked with the assumption that it was a natural consequence to sin coming into this world, that there would be this tension between the two sides. And that's not what it says. This wall of tension, this wall of hatred between the believing children of Eve and the unbelieving children of the devil was erected by God himself. Otherwise, it would not exist. Why? Why did God make this part of the curse, this hatred? Especially when you understand what he's saying. It's going to go on until the end of time. The verb tense says, this will last until this world ends. And it's like, is that really what God wanted? that Christians and non-Christians would be at each other's throat, that they, we'd live with this, this animosity. In fact, what really makes me wonder about that is God knows that from the point sin came into this world, mankind is no longer naturally born into God's family. Now, that's the way we were created. Uh, every child would be born and would immediately be a child of God because their parents were children of God. Now that sin has come to this world, that's, that's not how it works. We're not created in God's image. Genesis 5 says we're created in our Father's image, and that's not a good look. Uh, We're born sinful. We're born outside of God's family. God knew that the only way it would work from this point forward is if the children of Eve, the believers, would actually reach out to the children of the devil, the non-believers, and share with them the message of God's love. We call that evangelism. We call that sharing the good news. God knew how difficult he would make our lives by creating this wall of hatred, by putting this curse into this world. Not only has it made our lives difficult, because you know how Christians are being treated, but it makes witnessing and sharing our faith almost impossible, because they just don't want to listen. Why on earth would God do something like that? Because before this time, that wall didn't exist. I've missed this. You see, the devil was able to come to Eve with his temptation, and she was more than willing to listen to that because there was no animosity that was between them. To Eve, everything that she had experienced up to this point was ma'od tov, very good. She had no reason to question why this talking serpent might have somehow crept into her life with evil intentions because she had no natural animosity. She had no natural suspicion that part of God's creation could do something like this. And so while part of my mind goes, God, why did you make it so hard? The other part of my mind is, thank you, God, for creating this wall of tension. Otherwise, we would be fair game at any moment of any day for the devil himself to sneak into our lives and to tempt us as viciously as he tempted Eve. He'll take one word and turn it And you know how effective he is at doing that anyway, even with this wall of hatred. How much more effective could he get us to fall if that didn't exist? 
Behold the wisdom of God, where something that from our human perspective we might wonder about and question, God says, you need this protection because now that the devil has destroyed my beautiful world and everything I created you for, I don't want to lose your souls too because I am also going to create heaven so that we can eternally enjoy each other's company. I need to protect you so that that's a real possibility. Now here's the part that I'd always miss most of all. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, uh, fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And there's no way I could have fully understood it except through the eyes of Christmas. She saw the tree was ma'od tov. I don't know if you've ever had this false thinking, but I always thought the tree of knowledge of good and evil was evil. It wasn't. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. Just like everything else that God had created in this world. Eve had no reason to suspect that the fruit of this tree might do her harm other than the fact that God had warned her, don't eat it, don't touch it. And we all know that should have been enough. But there was something else that question that the devil had asked and I retranslated that for you in the past and I, I did originally. He didn't say any tree. He said every tree. This guy wants you to die? Shouldn't you eat from the trees? And so that starts Eve's thinking. She looks at the tree and saw that it was pleasing. There's ta'ava, a longing, an inclination, a craving. And don't let your mind immediately go, well that's a bad thing because generically it's neither good nor bad. What Eve saw in the fruit of this tree is that it was desirable. There was something about it that it could actually offer her. And you get to it when you finally get to this final word, kamad, to delight in, to take pleasure in, to be precious. She saw this tree would satisfy desire, not something that the devil had suggested to her, but something that was already within her. Within Eve, there was this deep desire for something that the devil recognized and figured out a way that he could use it against her. Now, this is where things are going to get a little bit complicated, but I'd like you, if you will, to just hang on for the ride because when I start to connect the dots, it's kind of mind-blowing. What I will simply refer to this internal desire, this innate wants, is the design of God, the wiring of our hearts. And so you understand it, let me simply point it out this way. It's why one person likes one thing and another person likes another thing. It's like one person craves chocolate and the other person could take it or leave it. It's why one person loves to spend time outside and the next person, if they had their druthers, would spend every waking moment inside because they hate the outdoors. It's the same reason why you can have six children in a family and they share all kinds of family traits, but deep down inside and you see it in the things that they say and the things that they do and the things that they want, they are completely unique, different individuals. If you're not a longtime member of Abiding Shepherd, then you haven't had the benefit of having Proverbs 22.6 retranslated for you. And if you have seen it, it's a good review, and if you hadn't, I'd like you to understand. Unfortunately, it's horribly translated. Uh, whoever translated this verse should have gotten an F on Hebrew that day because they completely miss what the words say. The verb for train up a child has been totally missed. It's actually a pretty unique verb. It comes from the Arabic language, and it talks about massaging or rubbing the throat. And another way to understand it is to clear the palate. 
what a nurse will do when a baby is born. They have to pull that phlegm out in order for that child to breathe. And so what God is saying through Solomon is, is, is I want you to figure out how to give life to your child, but not just be good parents. He says, according to their particular way or manner, which is very intriguing when you start connecting these dots. It's like, oh, I get it. What God is telling the parents is, I have uniquely designed every single one of your children. And I, this was a rude awakening for me. We had son number one, and he was a pretty good baby, and I thought, oh, I got this dad thing down. Son number two shows up, and he's nothing like son number one. And I'm going, I'm screwed. What am I going to do? I don't know how to raise a kid like this. Little did I know he was wired very much like I am. Talk about frustrating. I'm sorry, honey. God gave me to you. That's what you have to deal with, okay? You can have children in a family that are so alike, but they're so different. God says, one of the beautiful things I want you to experience is every time you have a child, it's like going back to creation. Now, how did that happen? Jumped way ahead. There we go. Okay. It's like re-experiencing creation, like the discovery of Adam and Eve. What's this? Oh, that's amazing. Your children are a gift like that. And God says, as parents, it's your responsibility now to figure out how have I wired them. And you need to raise them in the way that they have been uniquely wired. You might have one child who's very compliant, and if they get in trouble, all you have to do is give them a dirty look and they're in tears. And then the next one might be strong-willed, and you can beat them, and I'm not suggesting you do. But you could beat them literal, and they'll come back and go, give me more, I dare you. It's so different. But when you understand it in the context of creation, it's absolutely amazing. It's God at work, and we get to witness it every single day. A lot of people think this comes down to the emotional differences in our lives, but it's not. It's not how we think. It's deeper than that. It's what's in our hearts. You might think, well, it's emotions, right? Hang with me. What I want you to understand is, is that God says this is such a deep part of who you are, your personality, your will, your wants, how you function, what you want to get out of life, that I had to bury it deep in your heart. And Scripture is filled with passages of saying it is so important that you need to guard your heart. In fact, if you look at what he writes to the Philippians, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. In fact, it is such a beautiful, precious thing that there's not much in this world short of God's own peace that will actually guard it the way that it needs to be guarded. In fact, even after the fall of creation, and that's why I provided these passages, depending upon our relationship with Jesus, that thing in our hearts will either produce something that's good or something that's evil. Remember those words for desirable and all that, they're very neutral. What it goes back to is where is it coming from? And the John passage tells us as long as we're connected to Jesus, it just doesn't make our hearts good. It makes the fruit good. It makes whatever comes out of what God has wired into our hearts, has designed into us, will also be good, including your wants and your desires. Again, people think, well, that's how you think. No, it's not. It's your emotions. It's what you like. It's not. You see, there's two unique words, one in the Old Testament, mishala, and one in the New Testament, epithemeto. And they both speak about these wants, these inclinations, these cravings. It's not emotions. It's your 
for lack of a better way to refer to them, it's your affections. It's what you were wired to want out of life. Uh, that's why one person loves to hunt and the other person loves sports. One person loves to sew and the other person loves to cook. God says this is part of your unique design. These are beautiful things. And it was meant to make your life that much more full. The problem is, is the devil learned that he had the ability to manipulate those. I want you to understand, these affections are not a flaw. God didn't make a mistake in creating Eve and Adam with these affections. They're actually an asset. It's what fills up our lives. It's what rounds out our earthly existence. And yet the devil recognized that somehow, if he could get Eve to question how to fulfill her affections, then it would simply be his best way to get at Adam because Adam's affections were for his wife. I've also included this chart of the difference between affection and emotions, and, I, and I'd like you to really consider it. And, and quite honestly, a lot of times I wonder, especially when I'm doing counseling or when I'm meeting with people, I, I want to get to the heart of the issue, and I know it's always a heart issue, but I haven't always fully understood. A lot of times I'm dealing with it on an emotional level, and after going through this lesson, I'm thinking, I, I need to deal with this from a, an affections level. It, it's why some relationships don't work, because one person wants to fulfill their affections, and the other po person is simply reacting to their emotions. It's why most of the problems that you will run into this life are people <laughs> problems. It's not procedural problems. It's not because the company you work for has all kinds of bad protocols, even though they might. Usually, nine out of ten problems go down to what does that person really want. And if it disagrees with what I want, and then you put that into a sinful world, that's oftentimes where the tension exists. Now, let me bring this back to our lesson. You see, Eve had been created in God's image. She was perfect and holy. She was without flaws. She was ma'od tov. She was happy. She knew what was right and she knew what was wrong. She knew what would make her happy. I want you to really think about this. A perfect woman in a perfect place with this question dangling. How do I get the affections of my heart. You see, for the longest time, I thought Eve was stupid. The devil offered her something she already had to be like God because she was like God. So why on earth did she fall for this? Why on earth did she even entertain his temptation? Because he offered her something that she didn't have. You see, what Eve wanted most is something we've already studied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also said eternity in the hearts of men. That's something universal to all of us. That's how we were originally created. If I dare say what Eve wanted most, what Eve's affections were, was to spend eternity with her creator. And you're going to look at me and go, that's crazy. Because she had it. And she did the one thing that destroyed it. True. But you need to understand that before Eve were two trees, both Ma'od Tov, they each had a specific purpose to serve. God's plan was, you can spend eternity with me if you will take the fruit and eat from the tree of life. But the outcome of that means that you will live with me forever, eternally. What we all want. 
Except there's something about us humans that it seems like we would prefer if we could get it all at once. And that was the part of not being like God that Eve possessed. You see what the devil tempted her with was a shortcut. That if she ate from the other tree, both ma'od tov, that it would be the shortcut. And what he was offering to her was the feeling as if she had spent an eternity with her creator without actually have to living through it. I don't know why I didn't do this before, but you go back to the temptation, and when she looks at the tree, what she saw was it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. The desirable word goes to the affections of her heart. The wisdom, and we've talked about this before too, it's knowledge that you can only gain through time and experience, like spending an eternity with our Creator. What Eve wanted most of all was to have that eternity with God and what the devil offered her was this shortcut to have the sensation or feeling as if she had spent eternity with her creator but she could get it without actually having to live through it. Now do you understand why God says I need to put this wall of hatred between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the devil? Because God knows how he has designed the heart. Beautiful, perfect, with these amazing affections that make us exactly who we are. And he's not going to let us be open game to the devil himself. Because Lord knows he's got us enough of the time. And he got to Eve while she was in this perfect state. And yet he knew how to manipulate her affections and use them against her. For years I've been scratching my head about these things. And it's not until you look at the beginning through the eyes or the echoes of Christmas and why God chose to take on flesh and blood. And I know it's to take us to heaven. And that's beautiful. I can't wait. I can't wait to see you all there. But what about the right now? Jesus says, I came to give you your lives back. I want you to have these fulfilling lives. I want your affections to be in a line with the way that I originally created you. And so if you truly understand what I'm suggesting is we're not just going to talk about the new year. We're going to focus on going from what we already know and hopefully are learning more and more into the unknown. Because, as you know, the devil's not going to leave us alone in this new year. In fact, I would suggest that given the couple of years that we've just been through, the devil's going to try even that much harder to try and separate us from our creator, to try and offer us something other than what is our heart's affection according to the way in which God has created it. We ask for love, and the world offers what it has, but it's fleeting and momentary. To find the love that lasts, we have to pass through the glittering town square and open the city gate. Walk toward the pastures of uncertainty onto a long, narrow road under a cold but starry sky into a barn that's never noticed into the manger that holds all of the love of God. See, we expected it at the big party under the extravagant tree, beneath the biggest bow and the shiniest paper. Instead, here it is, tiny, humble, 
helpless, offered. We kneel, overwhelmed. We almost missed you, even as we tried to celebrate you. Forgive us, Lord. Pour out your love so we can offer it to the world. Amen. Do you know why when you celebrate the holidays, Christmas, your heart leaps with joy, but then as it slowly fades into your memory, it feels like something was missing? Do you know why leaving a year behind, you had all of these goals and plans at the beginning of it, and you get to the end, and I got some of them done, but I didn't get others done, and, and you think, well, maybe it was a good year, but part of you just goes, it wasn't a great year. It wasn't the year I had hoped for, and it never is. You can make all the resolutions you want, and it never lives up to our expectations, because somewhere deep inside of us, God says, I created you for so much more. And it comes also in the second part of the curse. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And I know we've been taught. This is the very first time in all of Scripture God presents the good news, that he's going to send us a rescuer who will die to pay for our sins. I know Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled only with Christ being nailed to the cross, the place that you and I should have been nailed to pay for our own sins. And God in his great love steps at our place and he says, no way. I'm doing this for you. I know this passage guarantees that we will go to heaven because Christ has made full payment, something that none of us could ever do. But there is so much more here, and we've been looking at it the whole time. We've had this intentional blindness. God's love is so big. It finally dawns on me there's too much to take in all at once, and it takes a lifetime to study it, to grasp it, and even then we're left with so many questions because... It's almost too much. You see, sometimes I think we forget and we jump too quickly and say, well, the end of the verse is talking about that one specific offspring that we miss the fact that Jesus is an offspring of Eve. That's why Luke's genealogy takes us all the way back to Adam, whereas Matthew's will only take us back to Abraham. And that's why both Christmas stories are so vitally important and why the Holy Spirit recorded them two ways. And there's a reason why in this curse, God doesn't say, I will put enmity between you and Eve. She says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman because you were taken from man. You were taken from Adam. You see how the devil worked here. He knew he couldn't get to Adam's heart because of the role that he was given, because of the responsibility that he was given. But he had watched and he knew that Adam's heart, his affections, were for his wife because that's what God created him to want. So how do you get to Adam's heart? You have to do it through woman, the one that was taken from next to his heart. You need to understand what God has done for us by providing this wall of hatred that culminated at the cross. That only God's son in human flesh and form could actually do everything that God had promised, but everything that God had created. Which leads me to think, and this isn't something that I've stumbled on all on my own, after our sanctification series and a few others, I thought, you know what? I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better pastor. Not just so I look good in other people's eyes and I win your approval, but because I want to I want to be that for God because God has been so much 
for me. And the harder I try sometimes, it feels like the further away I get from my, my goal because I'm going at the affections of my heart the wrong way. It seems to me that once you actually do connect all these dots, we've been fighting this battle all wrong. From little on, we're taught, don't do that because you'll get in trouble. And guilt and shame become these motivators that they were never meant to be. But God created us with this affection to want to please our creator and to spend eternity with him. So there must be a different way to fight temptation. And I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about the fact that we sin. Because we're all sinners. And you know what? Sinners sin. I'm talking about that one sin that you just can't kick. I'm talking about that secret sin, the one that just drives you nuts. That sin that you won't talk to anybody about because you're too ashamed. Because if you actually said it out loud, you'd probably break into tears. You'd probably never want to show your face again. That one sin that you wish God himself could not see. But you know you can't hide from him because he's all knowing. It's the sin that touches on the affections of your heart. And why is it that you struggle with that sin and not this sin? Do not underestimate the devil. He doesn't know your minds. He doesn't know what's in your heart, but he watches and he learns. He hunts you like a lion. He watches what route you take. He knows where you're weak. And he learns how to take your affection, something that God has beautifully designed within you, and turn them against you. That's why it only makes sense from the perspective of Christmas. You see, I, I, I think we've missed something here too. Let me show it to you. And I know you've heard these passages before, but I'd like you to look at them now with new eyes, understanding this. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. It had never dawned on me, and I know everything I thought I needed to know about the human nature of Jesus Christ. I've been through all the courses. I've read the passages, but it never dawned on me that our brother was created with affections in his heart. And not once did he ever give in to the temptations of the devil. And the best I can reason is that his greatest affection was to do nothing other than fulfill his father's will. You hear him say it again and again. Why? God's holy. He doesn't need any of that. He did it for us. So that when you fight that battle against what the devil's using against you, he knows that battle. So much so, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What's this about? I think the answer is not just to fight temptation. It seems to me that the answer to this dilemma, what's wrong with that picture, the way we need to fight sin is to ask God for a new heart. And I know he gives it to us through the gift of faith, but I don't know if we've plumbed the depths of what that means. And I think of King David, after committing some of the most heinous sins, adultery with another man's wife, and then he kills him. And he doesn't pray to God going, please make me stop lusting after other women. 
He doesn't say, God, please help me uh, to not misuse my power where I can just off anybody that I want out of the way. He asks God, give me a new heart. That's the answer. In fact, I know it's the answer because God says so in Scripture. There's these two passages in Ezekiel, and it talks about Israel during their captivity. Ezekiel was the one prophet who speaks to them, if you will, from a more blue-collar point of view. And that might be a crude way to say, he's down in the trenches with them, whereas Daniel's in the palace. He knows what's going on in their lives. He knows how their life stinks. And God sends him to encourage these people. And every time he speaks, it's still a reminder that they're in captivity because of their rebellion against God. He speaks about this new heart because what brought him into this captivity was following the affections in all the wrong ways. Idols, these false gods, things that would make them feel good from a, a very short-term temporal point of view, but not ultimately the things that would serve God or their own good. And here's the thing. If you go through these passages, and I, I think I'm going to save these for another time, but it speaks about confession. It speaks about God washing us clean, or we would relate that to absolution. And it says these things happen, and then we can finally be ma'od tov, not physically, not in the earthly sense, but our, our hearts. Finally, our hearts can be new. They can be this ma'od tov. And I'm going to be honest with you. As I was working through this, I'm going, there's so much here. I've I got to... I got to do some more study on this. And you can ask my wife, I do not make New Year's resolutions. I hate making resolutions. I'm making one this year. I, I'm going to dig deeper on this. I, I got to find out. My heart's desire, my affection is I, I got to unravel this mystery, this mystery that I have for my whole life been dancing around and blind to. What is it? And I know it requires more study. I don't know if it's going to turn into a Bible class or another sermon that you're going, wait, that's too much, especially after New Year's Eve. Please don't drop a bomb like that at that time. I, I, I don't know, but in a way, I've seen something that I cannot unsee. And, and I would suggest to you that if we truly want to be confident in this new year, if we want to really be blessed, God's got a, a design for that. And I know it's more than just following his word. And, and that's one of the things that bugs me. Why do we settle for compliance when God wants to give us a fuller life? Why do we stop short with obedience? Why, why in our minds does that become enough? Well, I did what you asked me to do. I, I did what God said I should do. That, that should be right. But we walk away from that going, that, that's just, that's not quite it. How is it that we ultimately receive this harmony of a ma'od tov heart where it rests with God? I, I, I haven't uncovered all that. But here's one thing I do know. I don't want you to too quickly pack away your Christmas. And I don't just mean the tree and the ornaments, but the true message. Because within God becoming human, we find so many answers to questions we didn't even know to ask. I know this. The answer lies in the echoes of Christmas. I used to know who I was. I didn't care. I didn't care what people thought, what they said about me. With a smile and a shrug, I laughed it off. I buried it deep in my soul. Every judgment, every disapproval, every missed opportunity, 
They lay dormant in my soul. Fear is a convenient friend. So comfortable. So true, right? I traded the truth for a lie. A falseness that clothes itself in having a backup plan. Why trust in the creator when I can create my own reality? I traded the creator's approval for the approval of men. I thought what they said mattered. I thought that I should just give in to the fear. It wins, right? The fear? Stay in comfort. But when I stay, there is no trust. No trust in the unknown. To trade in my fear for belief, I'm not defined by approval. I am sung over with approval from the Mighty One. Bring on the unknown.